This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is multidisciplinary artist, choreographer, and dancer Debbie Kajiyama, co-founder of Mapit Dance Theater. Debbie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Kat, for having me. Debbie, I want to start with a little bit about you, specifically where and how you grew up. What was your family like? Yeah, so I am a queer fourth-generation Nikkei person. I was born in Stockton, California, in the Central Valley, and grew up between there and San Francisco. Um, my grandparents uh, were incarcerated in Amachi, Colorado, Rower, Arkansas, and Tule Lake, California, and they were sort of worked in farming, truck driving, garment cutters, um, and my ancestors are from southern part of Japan in Hiroshima and Wakayama. Um, I guess I I grew up loving to move, loving movement. I, I um, did gymnastics and loved tumbling when I was a kid, and I was required to take dance classes. I didn't choose to, but I was required to as part of that. Then that's how I started dancing. Debbie, I want to go back. Actually, you mentioned your grandparents being incarcerated. You're talking about during uh, or inside of Japanese internment camps, yes? Right, yeah. How did that experience for them impact your worldview or political analysis? Yeah, I think it's kind of a complicated thing that I'm still dealing with. Um, part of it was to make people in my family feel like, oh, we have to keep our heads down. Mm. And just try as much as possible to do good work, but not stand out so as not to be targeted. Um, and then the other part, I think, is also probably one of the reasons why I think it is really important to stand out and stand up and speak out now. Because um, if we all just keep our heads down, nothing will ever change and things will go south. Um, yeah. And things did go south, right, with the coronavirus and Trump's targeting of the AAPI community. Can you talk about that being sort of a full circle moment in terms of the targeting of your community and, and maybe how that impacted you and your elders? I think one thing that it made me do was um, it made me take a trip to Arkansas this year. Um, so I decided to go, they, they have pilgrimages to many of the incarceration sites. And I took a, a pilgrimage, uh, to Arkansas earlier this year to, to touch the land where my grandparents were interned in Rower. And, um, and I was really shocked because, um, I mean, I expected to feel a lot of things, but I didn't expect to be, to have so many um, sort of military, militaristic statues mm. left same, in, same in the area. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these were built, you know, a long time ago um, by the folks in the camps. But they were like, there was a, literally a memorial statue, but it was a tank in the shape of a tank. And it was so, <laughs> I I felt like, it was very difficult for me to even have conversations with the folks on the pilgrimage in a way, which is something that I'm really um, interested in now. Jose and I are, are 
in the beginning of conjuring a new piece about how you talk to people who think really differently from you. Mm. Um, and I didn't think I didn't do a great job of talking, but I just said, you know, it's not, it, it made me feel really sick to my stomach to see how we can use, um, like the fact that, oh, I, well, I served in the military, so I'm loyal to my country. And that makes, uh, that makes me a, a, a good person. It, it makes me be someone of value to my country. Um, it, it was just very, very, make me so angry and so sad at the same time to see that. Um, it's something I feel that still has repercussions even now because a lot of folks have just not dealt with it. Yeah, and this is it the direction I thought the interview was going to go. Um, but I've been having these conversations with uh, other folks whose parents, like my father was a Vietnam vet, um, and I think I actually just mentioned my producer the other day, right, as being second generation victims of that war and thinking about the way trauma, you know, travels down um, into subsequent generations. Um, so thank you for your vulnerability there. Yeah, no problem. So you said you were, you were, you had to take dance classes. Um, what, what dance classes were you taking? What, what, what oh, form? I, yeah. I took ballet and jazz at the time. Um, and I think in, when my, co-director Jose Navarrete was uh, was on earlier. He was talking about how he never had the right body type or the right skin color or the right look to be in that world. And that was definitely something that I felt. But I think I, looking back on it, it's more clear that I really felt like I was fighting. I was fighting to get my body to do things that it actually didn't want to do. Um, and it wasn't until after college, maybe, that I found contact improvisation, other like practices that are more experimental or improvisational. And that really started with your inner life, like started with an inward attention, paying attention to your body and where you're at, and then being able to relate to others, you know, as a, as a dance practice. Yeah, Jose and I did talk about it, and um, particularly ballet and the violence. I, I don't have another word for it sometimes of that craft. Um, like, I still carry trauma um, from having, you know, a big bone black body um, and, and trying to do ballet. Um, did you carry any of that with you in terms of body image, self-esteem, et cetera? Uh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> Um, I did like a seven-year project with Dandelion Dance Theater where we explored that entirely with a cast of um, the, the whole performance was with no clothes. Whoa. And, and um, it was a very long process. And during that time, I was actually targeted by stalkers um, who didn't I don't think ever came to the show or knew anything about the project that we were doing, but suddenly it, it triggered them and um, the police had to be involved. Sex crimes unit had to be involved. It got death threats from people. It's just, um, 
something about the body in our society is very triggering to people, like the human body. I feel like as a dancer, that's like my practice. That's that's what I use as my tool. Mm-hmm. And and it's so it can be so threatening to so many people to acknowledge the body. I worked with you on a project um, in the Tenderloin um, where you were, you and Jose Wernaka was like in deep, deep partnership and relationship uh, with community, right? For them Mm -hmm. to tell their stories. Can you talk about using dance um, in partnership with community as a social justice practice? Yeah. I feel like there are certain things that I, power imbalances are sort of the big banner that I think about that under, um, that what I'm really interested is how bodies are controlled, right? In our society, we police bodies, we incarcerate bodies, we label our body, people's bodies illegal. We apply pressure, society applies pressure to behave in a specific way physically. Otherwise you'll be ostracized or labeled weird or stupid or irresponsible or defective. Um, and so those are those are all sort of the big questions um, that come into play, especially when, when we were working in the Tenderloin. Um, it's a place that many, many people that I talk to that I invite to come to the show won't, won't even want to go there, um, which makes me really sad um, because – and this actually – the collaboration was with Skywatchers, which is run by Anne Bleetenthal and dancers. Um, and Anne's company was the first company that I ever danced with in San Francisco before, well, long before she started Skywatchers. Um, but that um, that was a really amazing teaching moment for me, a learning moment for me, um, where I learned more about improvisation than I had ever before because I was I was like nervous like okay if we're gonna do a show what happens if um, you know someone has a crisis and they can't come to the show at the time and the date that we we um, decided on I'm like okay and then when you get in and you're actually working together it's like I don't know what I was worried about like it's just an improvisation that we're always doing life and performance the lines get really blurred for me so it's like when I was growing up, it's like, okay, the re- rehearsal is inside this studio and it's from this time to this time on this date. Everyone comes and you rehearse and then you go away. And that's like such a bizarre way of working if I think about it from my perspective now. Like, no, you actually, you go and you hang out with folks and you get to know them. You build trust because you show up and you're vulnerable and you're honest about your own life and there, you try and create a safe environment where folks can, maybe they're not going to talk about the most horrible thing that has ever happened to them the first day that you meet them, who would? Um, but I feel like the in the process, the process and the performance is all the same thing. You're, you're making a space for folks to share and if it's if it's um, if it's handled well, if you have support of the group, then it can be a healing space also. 
Talk about your artistic process, Debbie. I know it varies, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, one of the things I really respect about the way you and Jose work is you really engage in what I call organizing one-on-one, right? You meet the people that you are working with where they're at. Um, mm-hmm. So talk about from from initial contact, right? Um, yep. Let's tell your story to opening night. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it always um, begins with just knowing people. Um, and there are really incredible stories that I feel like are not under the spotlight. They're not put on stage. And those are really the stories that are most interesting to me. Like Viet Tan Nguyen calls it narrative scarcity, where there's not enough stories from these folks here. And ha- and, and they're really interesting and they're really important to, for us all to hear. So um, it's hanging out, I would say. Um, we've been in a collaboration with Mujeres Unidas y Activas, MUA, for probably seven years. And I think the initial contact was Mua was reaching out to Jose to come in, like do one or two movement workshops with us. And that's kind of how it it all began. And then it expanded into, okay, well actually let's, um, let's have regular meetings, weekly meetings with survivors of domestic violence and sexual abuse. And, um, we'll talk about whatever comes up and we'll do some movement we'll do some dancing and we'll just get to know each other. And it turned out from there that some of the women said, you know what, I'm ready. I want to tell my story on stage. And um, as we kept working with them, it became really obvious. Some had a really urgent need to tell their story and people were nervous because some folks haven't ever performed at all on stage in, a, in public, let alone tell such a vulnerable story. So uh, we worked with folks, sometimes one-on-one, um, sometimes in supportive groups, and worked with MUA also because we are not trained therapists, right? And this is a very, um, I feel like my, my body's shaking right now even thinking about the stories, um, to have paraprofessionals on hand, to have folks on hand during the the performances in order to support not just the performers but also the community and the family members who are witnessing these stories i so love that i have been thinking about healing justice you know at at, in aptp but that also then translated to me thinking about healing justice as an artist right because as artists of color we are either writing about our trauma and oppression acting, dancing, painting, singing about our oppression and trauma, um, rehearsing it. Right. And then to your point, then it's like, okay, bye, go home. And so, um, just to listeners know, Debbie and Jose are why Tasha exists. Actually. Um, we did our first monologue and now, you know, it's a whole play. And the last few times we've had healing justice practitioners on site. Ah, brilliant. So brilliant. Yeah. Because I feel like that it's, it's so necessary to tell that story and you tell it so brilliantly. And it is like, it's hard to watch. It's hard to listen to because it's so powerful and so tragic. 
And then I'd love to hear your thought about this, right? Because we don't do art for the sake of art, right? We do art for the sake of education and inspiring people to act. And so my theory around the HJ practitioners being there for audiences to access is that like, if you see something like Tasha or you see a Naka performance, you know, with these tragic stories and you're so traumatized that you walk out and you're like, I never want to think about that again, then we've, right, we've missed our purpose. What do you think? Yeah. And I feel like that's one of the reasons we have some other practices. For example, we use a lot of objects, objects and poetry, um, like games, not games, but um, we experiment a lot with different sculptural objects and set designs and things like that. For example, in the Anastasio project, Mm. way back when that we Mm -hmm. did at East Side, which was a piece about... um, the connections between profiling at the U.S.-Mexico border and um, profiling in Oakland, the streets of Oakland, by the by the state, um, we had a an object. We had a big um, sculpture that bisected the, the performance space. It was a sculpture of strings wrapped around two pillars so high that it became like a wall. Um, And this object was a way to invite performers who maybe had never performed in front of an audience before to interact with this object that evokes so many images. Um, Some things that you might not be able to even articulate in words, but with your physical performance, it evoked a lot of things. It evoked for me... I was just rethinking about it before I talked to you today. Um, it evoked a wall, so it evokes this barrier, the U.S.-Mexico border. It evoked for me also the static of a bad surveillance camera because of how it vibrated when it was touched. Um, so I guess my my point is that sometimes we bring in evocative objects to be played with because the topics that we want to address can't be looked at directly or it's, it's, it's difficult to look at them directly. It's difficult to talk about them directly. And sometimes if you take the side, if you take the, if you go around the edges, um, it's easier to actually get to the center if you take some time around the edges so the the objects, and actually that's what the the last performance that we did um, at Eastside was um, a project with Mujeres Unidas y Activas, and we were looking at all of those objects that we've used over the past five years, and and sort of re-looking at them and um, exploring them in a deeper way. So the themes are all still there; they're all really present, and the stories are still there but um it's like i was just talking to jose and he's like it's like a a rhizome it's like a little um or one star that explodes and then you if you look deeply in that stars it like explodes into different groups of stars um it becomes something else that still has the root of what you were originally proposing i don't know if that makes sense it does because I know Jose and and he's so beautiful. Um, oh my gosh, I'm looking at the clock and I have so many more things I want to ask you. Um, but, but 
All right. Well, because you mentioned East Side and, and you, you brought up things that are difficult to look at and where East Side is located is on E14, right? And it's the beginning of the blade um, where we watch our children, 12, 13, 14 year olds, you know, bought yep. and sold yep. for decades now, right? And, and nobody mm-hmm. does anything. And then there's this beautiful space for, you know, at Eastside for creativity and organizing and radical politics and Black Panther Party legacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about creating beauty while sitting in something so painfully present, I guess, is the word? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like there's any other choice. Mm. in a way for me um we a year ago we started a project with uh, the maya mom community and in august of this year we we had an exhibit in the new east east side gallery um, of the things that the traditional weaving that they did um it was stunning. It was absolutely stunning and absolutely beautiful. And I can't tell you, while we were putting up the exhibit, I can't tell you how many people just like wandered in off of the street and got to witness uh, this beauty. Um, and I, I feel like there is, that, that we need that beauty to survive. We need to be using it to also address all of the things that are that need fixing in the neighborhood as well. But I don't think that it's it's not ignoring the community. It's of and by the community. And so, if folks tell me like they don't want to go to the Tenderloin or they don't want to go to East Side, even um, it's like, but you're missing out. You're missing out on a huge, rich legacy, huge stories, and and also powerful, moving, deep, deep art and stories. When we had Jose on, I asked him about, you know, y'all's origin story and and how you met. Um, But what I want to ask you is, you know, Jose is, um, you know, an immigrant from Mexico and carries that, uh, that particular experience of white supremacy, right? Being in a Latinx body. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you are an uh, Asian American woman with, you know, the, the history and the, that we talked about in your own experience with white supremacy. Can you talk about the way that y'all's two experiences dance together and heal? Yeah, I think that for some reason, the, the things that bring us together are the finding compassion for folks in our own communities, but also especially in across communities. Um, that's really important for us. Like we're working with Mujeres Unidas right now and Jose is like one of the very few men who have worked this long and this deeply with Mujeres Unidas. And I don't know, I, I'm guessing I'm probably one of the only non-Latinx or non-Indigenous people who are also uh, involved with the organization. Um, yeah, just caring about the plight of the other. And then you find all of the connections 
that you actually have, even though you thought they were the other. They're actually not. Yeah, that was I mean, embarrassing. I don't know if that was a good answer or not, but it, it was, and I mean, it was a pretty ethereal, ethereal question. Um, uh, what's next for Naka Dance uh, Theater? And then tell people where they can find you. Sure, um, we're really excited. In 2024, we're going to be touring to Los Angeles in a collaboration with an organization called Union de Vecinos. They do a lot of work um, about displacement and um, the unhoused folks there in Boyle Heights. And so we're going to be doing some street performances with them um, on the weekend of International Women's Day in March. And then we're touring to Cornell University um, because of our um, colleague Juan Manuel Aldape, who's now a professor there, who... Um, we actually danced in one of the first versions of Ibastaya. Um, so we're going to go out there and bring some of the women from Mua with us to tour. Um, yeah, and then we're also super excited because we're in conversations with a residency, an artist residency in Florida called Mansi. It's the Maggie Alice National Center for Choreography in Tallahassee. And the plan, we are still working out the details, but our hope is that we're going to be in residency just prior to the elections next year, and oh. uh, which will be very intense to be in Florida just prior to the elections. Yeah. But um, this is part of our thinking about, okay, how do you talk, how do you have dialogue with people who think very differently from you? I think that's it it's a huge scary exercise that we're just starting to like work the details on. But, um, and that is the plan for next fall. And if folks want to go online and learn more about NACA, where do they go? Yeah. You can check us out on Instagram, NACA dance theater, and we're on Facebook also. And there's a website, nakadancetheater.com. <laughs> You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I have been in conversation with Debbie Kajiyama, this week's Resistance in Residence artist, a multidisciplinary artist, choreographer, and dancer, and co-founder of Naka Dance Theater. Debbie, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law Disorders produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>